what a day! What a lovely day! <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute Podcast, the daily podcast where we break down Mad Max one minute at a time. I'm Rick. I'm Julia. And today we are talking about minute one of Mad Max. This is the flagship episode of our minute by minute podcast. Minute one begins with production logos and it ends with an establishing shot of the decrepit halls of justice. Right off the bat... This is a CinemaSins moment. We have 20 seconds of logos for only two logos. <laughs> <laughs> now, I know, like, this is 1979 when they're making this. And the MGM logo, you have the roaring line. It takes a while. The, um, what's the other one? Uh, American International. Yeah, that one is, it, it's kind of a boring logo. You looked up a bunch of stuff about American International, right? I did. Um, they were active... Through the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Mad Max was one of the last movies that they did hmm. before they went defunct. Um, and they specialized in doing uh, independent, low-budget movies. And they originally released this movie to America, dubbed by American actors. I imagine that sounded terrible. Well, they did it because, and they have a point, I watched side-by-side comparisons, they did it because the sound in the original version wasn't that great. Which, by the way, we are watching the original version with the not great sound. <laughs> in fact, I didn't notice until after I watched the side-by-side that, yeah, sometimes the sound doesn't really line up that great. There's one particular, I think it's in minute three, where Roop is laughing. I think when he's spying through the, the shotgun at the people having sex, he's laughing and the sound does not line up. So that's a perfect example of... Maybe why they did it. They also didn't think Americans would be able to understand the Australian accent and lingo. You know, that is that is entirely understandable. There have been a couple of minutes as we've been preparing for this where I've got the script on one side of the screen and I've got the movie on the other side of the screen and I will be watching it and trying to listen to what they're saying and sometimes either I'll miss something or it just doesn't line up. I think it's somewhere around minute 9 or 10. There's a really good example of that. But here in the first minute, there's no dialogue whatsoever. So it really nope. doesn't matter what what version you're watching. Nope. Does not matter right now. <laughs> so after the production logos, you get the production company, Kennedy Miller, which is a combination of Byron Kennedy, who was the producer for the film, and George Miller, who was, of course, the director. These are also the guys who raised a bunch of the money for the movie. And... Um, there's the um, the old story about them driving around doing emergency ambulance services with Kennedy was driving and Miller was actually performing the emergency services because Miller has a background as a doctor before he ever got into filmmaking. And uh, the interesting thing about Kennedy Miller Productions is that it's not a one-off thing. Pretty much, I'm not going to say all, but a vast majority of Miller's films were produced by this duo. They have 27 films in their filmography. 26 of those have actually been released, and one 
is slated to come out later, which is actually the follow-up to Mad Max Fury Road. They had one release before Mad Max entitled The Devil in Evening Dress, which was produced in 1974, but I will be damned if I could find anything about de <laughs> The Devil in Evening Dress. There is very little on the internet that I was able to scrounge up. But outside of the Mad Max series, uh, Kennedy Miller also produced uh, The Witches of Eastwick, which is the um, Jack Nicholson movie with... Um, Michelle Pfeiffer? Michelle Pfeiffer shares in it. It's a comedy about witches and the devil, and it's actually really good. <laughs> I haven't I, seen it. Maybe we should watch yeah, it. Yeah, we should, we should definitely watch it. Um, and then, of course, Happy Feet, Babe, Babe, Pig in the City, those... those kid movies and whatnot and i think everybody always um, gets a kick out of the fact that he went from these ultra violent <laughs> mad max movies to these super cutesy kids movies yeah after you see kennedy miller productions it lists the uh the top six build actors in the movie i looked up on imdb each one of these actors between you know mel gibson joanne samuel hugh keys burns steve Bisley, tim burns and roger ward and of those six actors, only Tim Burns is the one that's not currently working. They're all doing uh, television or working behind the camera. This was not the absolute first thing that each one of them had done, but it's definitely not the last. I mean, Tim Burns, I think the last entry in IMDb he logged was back in like 1995, so he was still working a good, you know, twenty some odd years later. I'm I'm glad to see that that most of them continued acting. It's kind of I, I like to see a movie that you know pulls local actors and like and they were able to build a career off of that. Uh, I like seeing that sort of thing. Hmm. So I'm glad that they had careers. So one of the things that stands out about Mad Max and really shows off the low-budget nature of the movie is the fact that the opening credits are just plain white text on a black background. But I, I, really, I really like the look of the actual Mad Max logo. I mean, yeah, it flies in on white text, but then it switches over to that chrome look with the grill and lightning bolts behind it. And um, I'm, kind of a, I'm kind of a sucker for 80s schlock and cheese and things like that and that's probably classic late 70s early 80s oh yeah yeah i appreciate that they use their their graphic design budget <laughs> on the logo rather than the credits mm -hmm. the actors can speak for themselves they're gonna show us what they can do over the next 90 minutes but that logo that logo is quite fantastic after the main title we get the screenplay we get the photography, art direction, editor. Do you have anything for those? I didn't. And now I'm curious if any of those behind the scenes people continue to work with the Kennedy Miller production. If they were involved in any of his other projects. And it didn't occur to me to look that up. I feel like I feel like it's a pretty good chance. I mean, if you if you find a good group of people to work with, chances yeah. are you stick with them. You're going to stick with them. Especially by all accounts this was not the easiest film to make. Yeah. There was a lot of DIY. There was a lot of sacrificing of safety measures. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> so if you find people that are willing to work with that and to push the boundaries of what can be done on such a small budget, go for it. 
Well, I know there was at least one person that actually did continue working on the Mad Max series of films, and that's the composer, Brian May. He actually he did the music for Mad Max, and he actually came back and did the music for Mad Max The Road Warrior as well. Okay, that's nice. I, I feel like a, a composer carrying over from film to film is really handy in when you're doing sequels to tie everything together. Mm. You get that the feel, the emotions that just listening to the music conjures for you. It connects you from one film to another. Star Wars, of course, being a classic example of that. Yeah, pretty much anything John Williams does instantly <laughs> yeah. turns iconic. The interesting thing about the music in this movie is that I didn't remember how heavily it leans on that late 70s vibe, you know? Yeah, I think we think of Mad Max as 80s. Yeah. And the original Mad Max was made in the 70s. Yeah. It was released in Australia in 79, in America in 80. So it is a 70s film. Yeah, and it's incre- It's incredibly orchestral. It's not... Yes. It's not something that's super synthy or something that's super rocky. Like, when you think of the music in the Mad Max series, obviously your mind is instantly going to go to Fury Road. And Fury Road had an amazing soundtrack with... The, the electric guitar, the Doof Warrior up on his big truck, ripping yeah. out riffs like that. And you've got the, the giant drums on the back of that wagon. I mean, it's got a very grandiose feel to it. And when you come back to Mad Max, everything seems like, yeah, they still bust out the percussion. But it just seems a bit more subdued. And you'll definitely hear it if you start listening to some of the slower scenes where it gets mm-hmm. really soft. As opposed to the really hard-thumping soundtrack that you would expect from a chase movie. Yeah, I agree. The last shot of the minute that we get is an establishing shot of the Halls of Justice. And we'll see in minute two that this is just a quick thing. But I was curious about the physical Halls of Justice and um, their location. Because I believe the Halls of Justice, the location for the Halls of Justice has been renovated over the years. It does not look today how it looked back in 1979 because that location in Melbourne, Australia, is actually now a place called ScienceWorks, which is a family-focused science and technology center featuring changing interactive exhibits and a planetarium. Oh, that sounds like fun. Yeah. (laughs) It... It sounds especially fun because it would be a fun place to visit, not just for people who are nostalgic about the film, but for people who actually like want something to do. Yeah. I love planetariums. I was thinking the other day we should go to the planetarium. What do you think? Krista McAuliffe? Yeah. That one? Yeah, it's we haven't been, been there in... It's been a long time. Since we were dating. I don't think we've been to the planetarium since we were dating. Well, you know, in our defense, how different do planetariums get? Well, not at all. I mean, I'd much rather go down to the one in Boston because... You Get a least, different show. Yeah. You at least, you're in Boston. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> only saying you're in Boston. <laughs> I've got a little bit of information about money. The budget. I found wide ranging numbers, anywhere between 200000 to 350000 And it wasn't exactly clear if that was Australian dollars or American dollars. So perhaps that explains the discrepancy in the amounts. But best case scenario I found was $350,000. And that's not a lot of money. No. That is minuscule. And as we go throughout these minutes, we're going to have lots and lots of stories about ways that they shot a particular scene on low budget. 
And there's one scene where the actor looks really rushed doing what he's doing because they didn't have permits to be there. Yeah. So they like set up their equipment, did the scene as fast as they could, and got out of there. And that's like throughout the whole movie because they had no money. Mm-hmm. The fact that they produced a movie at all on that budget is phenomenal. The fact that it turned out to be a great movie, just wonderful. Wonderful for us. I did gross worldwide $100 million. So that is quite the return on their investment. I'm sure that Kennedy and Miller were quite happy just to have made the film and to put it out, considering it was our own money. But to turn around and make $100 million is, yeah, pretty awesome. Uh, So, of course, it sparked sequels. They did hold the the Guinness World Record for most profitable independent film from 1980 to 1999. That's 20 years. Yeah. 20 years most profitable independent film. And that's basing um, uh, gross versus cost. Mm -hmm. So it's like a, it's a percentage. Yeah. Um, They were dethroned by Blair Witch Project. Yeah. I, I... Which was, at the time, I'm sure it was quite predictable once Blair Witch Project kind of showed what it could do. Yeah. Yeah. We're not going to do Blair Witch Minute. No, no, no. I've actually never seen it. I don't like movies that make me afraid to go to bed. You know how in the first Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 1, they have that extended camping montage of yes. them just wandering through the woods? Imagine that, but with no budget starring amateur actors in the woods of, like, New Jersey. I don't know. You had me till New Jersey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love to camp, and I love to be outside, and I don't want that ruined for me. That's very fair. Yep. I've actually, I pulled a bunch of information about the development of the film from Wikipedia, because, you know, I'm using other people's work (laughs) to benefit (laughs) myself. I actually have a couple of bits of IMDb trivia. The, The first being that Mad Max... This first movie is the only one in the series not to contain narration. Because in all of the other movies, you either begin or end the movie with narration. Yeah. Some sort of description of the world as it is, or of the world as it will become after the film. This is the only one, no narration. Yeah, I uh, listened to an interview, it's actually in my notes for a different minute, but I listened to an interview with George Miller, the post-apocalyptic visual theme was not exactly by choice. It was more by necessity of the budget. They didn't have the budget to put in the extra work to make things look nice, to make buildings look nice, to have extras, to make to make the place look populated and well-kept. So product of that is that everything is kind of dilapidated and, and empty. Very few, like, background people. Hmm. Most people who are in the film are there for a reason, um, and not just to be seen, to fill space. I think it, it, wasn't a, it wasn't a conscious decision until the second film to be, like, post-apocalyptic on purpose. Hmm. And, and I like the idea that throughout this film, we're going to see it's not a ton about Max. It's more about the police force kind of as a whole and how they're handling this biker game. Um, it's not till the very end that we get Mad Max, that Mad Max as a person is created. We cross this line near the end of this film that we can't go back from. And we just continue forward on that vein with the rest of the movies. 
that Mad Max is getting more and more mad as the world is getting more and more mad. Speaking of that post-apocalyptic setting, another bit of IMDb trivia states that uh, George Miller was inspired by another post-apocalyptic movie from 1975 called The Boy and His Dog, which I think you see that influence a bit more for The Road Warrior, because A Boy and His Dog is obviously, like I said, post-apocalyptic movie about a kid wandering the post-apocalyptic wasteland with his psychic talking dog and it's kind of their <laughs> misadventures it's not a good film uh-huh the main character makes a bunch of decisions that are are bad <laughs> and so it's not like he followed the the direct example of that movie but there were like probably motifs that he was able to pull yeah it the, does sound like Road Warrior. Yeah. So going back into the development that I was talking about. So George Miller, as I mentioned when they were trying to raise money, he was trained as a medical doctor in Sydney. And he worked in a, an emergency room where he saw a lot of injuries and, you know, road vehicle accidents. And in fact, because of the fast wheeling car culture of Sydney where he grew up, and especially around rural Queensland, um, he lost three different friends in auto accidents growing up. So he's no stranger to losing people to auto accidents. That's interesting because there were only two countries where this film was banned. New Zealand actually banned the movie because the scene where Goose is burned alive in his vehicle it actually mirrored an incident with a real gang shortly before the film's release in New Zealand. Um, it was also banned in Sweden for ultraviolence, which, living in America, we don't ban movies for those reasons, but I can see their point of view because it is pretty violent. Yeah. So. Yep. Here in America, we only ban movies for bad words and sex. Yeah. You can have as much violence as you want as long as there's no blood spray. Right. <laughs> so it was actually while working in that hospital, he was in residency at Sydney Hospital. That's where he met Byron Kennedy who was at a summer film school in 1971. They uh, produced a short film called Violence in Cinema Part 1, which was screened at a number of film festivals and won several awards. Eight years later, they produced Mad Max, working with first-time screenwriter James McCausland, who appears in the film as the bearded man in an apron in front of the diner, which we will see um, in, I believe, the minute after we're first introduced to Goose. So according to Miller, and this probably made it a really easy job for McCausland, or McCausland? James McCausland? I don't know. He's Australian. I'm probably butchering it no matter what I say. <laughs> My guess would be McCausland. Yeah. Uh, M-C-C-A-U-S-L-A-N-D. Oh, maybe it's McCausland. Anyway, I don't know. to the family of James McCausland, we apologize. <laughs> I feel like there's going to be a lot of that. Probably. So according to Miller, his interest while writing Mad Max was a silent movie with sound, employing highly kinetic images reminiscent of Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd, while the narrative itself was basic and simple. Miller believed that audiences would find his violent story more believable if set in a bleak dystopian future. Uh, screenwriter McCausland drew heavily from his observations of the 1973 oil crisis's effect on Australian motorists. So, like I said, he envisioned this movie as a lot of action without a lot of 
expositional dialogue. And after reading that, I went back and I watched a couple of minutes without the sound on at all. And with the exception of losing out on a lot of the radio chatter in the first five minutes of the film, the action is clear enough. The police cars are very well defined as to who they are. The car that they're chasing is distinct from those, and so it's very easy to follow the action. And I feel like that idea of making a silent movie with sound can be seen, especially in Fury Road, because the dialogue is very light in Fury Road. I feel like uh, he probably went back to that style of thinking when he was producing that over, what was it, like 30 years between when Fury Road came out and after <laughs> Beyond Thunderdome. Yeah. And they actually did release a silent version of Fury Road just with the music and the sound effects left in. Really? I think it's part of the Black and Chrome DVD special edition. Okay. When we, way down the road, when we get there. Yeah. It's going to be a while. I, yeah. <laughs> um, I'd be very interested in that because I had the same experience as you when, when I first started reviewing Minutes, I did it at work, and I had forgotten my headphones, so I had it on mute. And I agree, you, I got the same information from just the visuals than I would, did when I went back and listened to it with the, the music and the, the radio. I really appreciate how movies like this, where there's not much dialogue, they really separate the two art forms of having a script and dialogue and telling a story through that means and the art of telling a story just almost solely through visual means. And there's lots of examples. Uh, the first one uh, that, that comes to mind is Castaway. There's hardly any talking in Castaway during the actual Castaway part. And they're telling us the story through visual just showing us what happened and george miller does a fantastic job of helping us understand like you said with the visual differences between the cars visual differences between the people driving them knight rider looks very different than any of the cops and it's very plain to see and easy to read i've got a bunch of notes on casting but we can save that for when we actually see people, see people yeah <laughs> i actually don't have any more notes so i think this is a good place to wrap up minute one there wasn't a lot of meaty content in this first minute but we certainly got into a lot of the behind the scenes information so join us tomorrow for minute two of the mad max minute podcast if you'd like to keep up with us we have a website madmaxminute.com we have a twitter at madmaxminute and we have a group page on facebook at facebook.com slash madmaxminute thank you for joining us for a mad max minute Episode one. Uh, we'll see you tomorrow. Motorbikes and men, take me to the end of the